The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in January 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome Norbert Leo Butts. Hi, Norbert. Hey, how are you doing? <laughs> Good, thanks. How are you? I'm well. Let me just run through a couple of your credits. Currently, you're appearing on Broadway in a Mark Twain show called Is He Dead? You've won the Tony Award for Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. You were in Wicked, the original Fierro, Mm -hmm. in the last five years off-Broadway. About uh, five years ago. About, that's about right, 2002. So that's, yeah. yeah. Uh, in Thou Shalt Not, the Harry Connick Jr. show, for which you had a Tony nomination. In Juno and the Paycock, uh, off-Broadway. Mm-hmm. And making your Broadway debut in Rent. And as I said at the beginning, now in a Mark Twain show, a new Mark Twain show that has never been produced before. Who knew? Who knew? Well, what do you say when your agent calls and says, we want you for the new Mark Twain show? They, I was immediately intrigued. You know, I love Mark Twain. I have for a long time now I haven't I hadn't at the time read a lot of Mark Twain like most Americans you know you get junior high English and you have to do Huck Finn um, but you know I'm, I'm from St. Louis Missouri he's from Hannibal so which is about an hour up the river so, so when you grow up, up yeah and, and when you grow up in that part of the country all that folklore those characters you know are our amusement parks in the summer, you know, there's Injun Joe's Cave and Tom Sawyer's Loft and, and Becky Thatcher's Cove. And, mm-hmm. and so we grow up with that. And so when I um, I did love, I, I was very obsessed with Huck Finn through high school and college. I read it several times. And then when I heard there was a script, I was like, pass it along. I laughed from about the fourth page on, not n- nonstop. Um, it was just a visceral reaction to it. I thought, this is hilarious. Now, it, it read very smoothly, and I, and and Twain doesn't normally read that smoothly, and that's when I looked at the front page, and I said, adapted by David Ives. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I was I was smitten with it from, from early on. Well, what what is the backstory on where the show's been all these years? It was just discovered a couple years ago. It's really cool. It's like, it's a, it's a story that Twain would have loved. Um, it, 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 it has been read. It was written in 1898, and it's been read by a couple of scholars through the year, through the years. Um, it's been read, um, begrudgingly because <laughs> he was, a, he was a bad playwright. I mean, you got to call a spade a spade. You know, he had two really bad bombs when, when, when he was writing and, um, when he was still alive. And so people knew that this thing existed, but it was sort of like, you know, every year some, some PhD Americana academic would come along and say, Oh, I've heard about this. I don't really want to read this. Cause it was still in like manuscript form, you know, written in longhand and, and nobody ever really, nobody gave it the time of day. Just kept shoving it back into this drawer basically at, uh, at the library at Berkeley. Um, until Shelly Fisher Fishkin, try saying that fast three times. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> Shelly Fisher Fishkin, Shelly Fisher Fishkin. I can't do it. It's like a warm up <laughs> exercise for a, a comedian. Anyway, um, she sat down like a few people before her, and and something went off. Uh, something lit her. Uh, she found herself laughing in the library and said, "You know what? I think this is better than people have given it given it credit for." And she contacted Hal Holbrook, who read the play and was totally charmed by it. So I had no idea this existed. Um, she sent it to Bob Boyette, who's our producer now on Broadway. Bob contacted David, and that sort of got the ball rolling. 
Can you talk, I assume you've had an opportunity to look at the original script compared to, to the, what's on stage now in David's adaptation. Yeah. Can you talk a little about kind of the differences between It's the a original? challenge to get through that original. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real challenge. You know, Twain was... <laughs> um, you know, more is more with Twain. It, he, it was it was too long. Um, it starts off with this great premise, you know what I mean? It's the same plot. There's just, you know, subplot A, B, and C along with the main plot. And you're like, I want to get back to the guy in the dress, you know what I mean? I want to get back to that main story or this main con, you know. Um, there were a lot of characters that just needed to be, it needed to be edited out, you know, there's if you've seen the show there there there's wonderful stereotypes cultural stereotypes you've got your irish sidekick and your german sidekick and your um your american sidekick but in the original play there was also an asian sidekick a middle eastern sidekick and africa and all written in these horrible accents like these yeah. just incredibly offensive dialects you know and they just weren't funny enough so David Ives was able to say you know what this is the same joke over and over again let's just do it once you know and it was so that was largely his job well for our, our listeners who have not seen the show what what exactly is the plot you you play two, uh, di- two different characters an act one character and an act two character yeah um it, it, it's it's a it's a fictional account of a real painter a guy who really lived his name was Jean-Francois Millet who was in fact a very celebrated um very wealthy toward the end of his life, uh, mid-19th century French French realist. He did, I guess his most famous painting um, is a painting called The Angelus or The Gleaners. Um, he depicted French peasants, uh, people working in fields, the common man, and so he had a lot of sort of like socialist leanings. And um, uh, But they're, they're, they're sort of beautiful uh, uh, not pieces of naturalism and and Twain would have known these paintings because they sold for record amounts of money toward the end of his life. Well he said wouldn't it be funny if the guy was starving and in order to drive up the prices of his paintings he and his friends wouldn't it be fun if we killed him off and they had come back in disguise um, they they decide as his twin sister would be the most effective way to drive the prices <laughs> of these paintings up um and it takes care of a lot of Twain's favorite thing, themes, you know. Um, he wants to make fun of the pretentiousness of the art world. He has some really actually some pointed things to say about media and and, and what drives the media, controversy rather than talent, you know. Um, and he had a lifelong love of the French, but as much as he loved them, he loved to make fun of them. So there's a ton of, of uh, cultural poking fun. So, so the play is basically a farce. It's a complete farce. You know, and the big hit of the day would have been Charlie's Aunt, and he was also a businessman, you know. Twain was known for, like, 20 failed entrepreneurial excursions. So he's like, well, this guy's making a bundle off of Charlie's Aunt. I'll write my own version of Charlie's Aunt. I mean, you know what I mean? It was, he, he ripped off the, the, you know, he grabbed the best of what he could find that was happening in theater, and he added his own spin on it. Let me ask you, you, were, you worked with the director... Michael Blakemore, yeah. who certainly was the director of one of the great all-time farces on Noises Broadway, Off. Noises yes. Off. In working with Michael, especially when you have the opportunity to get gotten up in a dress, <laughs> how do you know how far you can go, and is, can you go too far? <laughs> can you go too far? 
Well, if it's me in question, I'm always going to go too far. <laughs> I've been blessed <laughs> with directors with much more integrity than I have, and they they tend to reel me back in. Um, and so uh, I, I felt very, 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 very safe with him, as I did with Jack O'Brien and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, which is a, a sort of a farce in its own right, you know. Um, look, the the uh, a farce has to be. As, as as bizarre as events eventually go in a farce, as ridiculous and strange as they get, they have to be grounded in something real. And this is a smart play because the first 20 minutes of the play are not funny at all. And they're very melodramatic. It reads like Bad Ibsen or something like that. It's <laughs> this, this family is... Uh, this artist is starving, and his 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 girlfriend is about to be traded off to a villain. And, and Byron Jennings come in, oh, yeah. comes in virtually as snidely whiplash, whiplash yeah. or whatever Com- the French version of that. And Jen Gambatis is the blinking, doe-eyed ingenue, and you know it, it it's all there. But the situation is real. These are people that are that are really down on their luck. They're destitute, and and, and so the stakes are high. And and Twain sets that up because the pers- the, the pursuit. To try to make things better uh, under you know, dire circumstances is what uh, makes people behave in such ridiculous ways. If we're going to believe the ridiculousness, we have to believe the reality of the situation at the beginning of the play. Noises Off is the same way. All of Fado is like that. Um, Moliere is like that. They're really not very funny at first because you've got to set it all up. You've got to actually find characters that you believe in who are honest you know, and you can root for. And then you can break it all apart, and it can all go to hell in a handbasket, you know? Well, this show, is uh, Is He Dead, is basically a con, and so was Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and your character, Freddie Benson. In this show, it seems to me, sitting in the audience, that you seem to be having more fun as Daisy, the widow, in Act (laughs) 2. I see see a lot of Freddie Benson in Daisy, (laughs) that it's kind of like a comic tour de force for you. You kind of cut loose. Yeah. You know, this, this... this idea that someone uh, puts on a mask and it unleashes their inhibitions is is kind of it's a classic motif in comedy. You know what I mean? Um, and uh, I, I think that probably goes as far back as the Greeks. You know, Shakespeare did it all the time with girls and boys' clothes and boys and girls' clothes. And and um, it, 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 it's it's a very in some ways tired conceit (laughs) but what's fun about this is that um uh what allows me to sort of go so far out there again is that it's it's grounded in something fairly real um uh but also this this is a guy who puts who's very bad at the con he's very bad at pretending to be the woman he's terrible at pretending to be the woman at first and the fun of the evening i think is to watch him become a method actor he's like a daniel day lewis in a dress you know what i mean he goes for it you know what i mean he's three months he's living as this alter ego and that's the fun of the evening this guy really gets lost in this completely made up uh completely made up role but as an actor it seems like it's probably fun for you too that's always a ball that kind of transformation that's that's always what i look for in a play but it begs the question as you've gone on with the play, now a couple of months in, have you found more? <laughs> Taking my work home? No, I'm not wearing negligees to bed. No, no, no. But, but in terms of, of Honey, finding can I borrow your slipper? the characters, the characters' discovery yeah. of the freedom of playing someone else, have you taken that even further? Absolutely. Have you, have you developed that? Have you found nuances to that? Absolutely. Um, 
you I, I I've uh, a farce is a really um, rhythmic musical kind of comedy there's no music in the play there's a couple of little snippets of music but it's not a musical it's it's definitely a play but it moves with a very very fast rhythm people go oh god it felt like a musical to me and why it does is because that kind of comedy has an internal rhythm to it it's funny because the in the cast it's a lot of musical theater actors that are in this cast which is kind of interesting um Yes, so you become more comfortable with that rhythm. It frees up your body more, and you're able to move with um, more agility. That's the word that Michael Blakemore used a lot in rehearsals. Um, he talked a lot about um, agility and quickness um, and precision. Um, and when those technical aspects of it get very, very strong, it, it, it you can really, really go very, very far with it. So do you all crack yourselves up? We we try not to, you know, dirty. This is very different from Dirty Rotten because Dirty Rotten we could actually stop and improv a little bit. Mm-hmm. We could throw in our own lines here and there. You know, we could do that. Uh, it was very contemporary. David Yazbek's and and um, Jeffrey Lane Dry is very contemporary. Uh, Twain's voice is hard to emulate. You know what I mean? It's hard to extemporize in that uh, in in that vernacular. You know what I mean? Well, one one of the characteristics of Farce is timing. It's, think of the, yeah. old, the old Marx Brothers movie, slamming doors, exactly. going in one door and out the other. And you have much of that in this show as well, Absolutely. especially in the second act. Yeah. First act, too, but mostly in the second. And it's very difficult to rehearse. It's very, very hard to rehearse. It's incredibly unfunny for a long time. It's nothing lonelier than being in an empty rehearsal room, slamming doors and putting on silly wigs and clothes. And just hearing nothing but silence in the room while you're trying to bang out the the uh, the, the tempo of the thing, you know, mm-hmm. you you're just uh, with rehearsing this kind of show, you just can't wait for your first audience. Well, in a show like this, or Dirty Rotten Scandals, for that matter, yeah. um, I would think that that would influence your performance a good deal. What Absolutely. the audience reaction is, and does it vary from performance to performance? Absolutely. A, Comedy is, is, I was reading an interview by Andrea Martin, who I think is one of the funniest ladies ever born, and um, she said it. It's been said time after time after time. I I really agree. Comedy is hard. It's very, very hard. Um, with With a drama or something that doesn't have as, you know, that immediate vocal reaction from the audience... You can kind of just get lost in it with a comedy. You don't get to laugh. It means you don't get to laugh. It means, and you you know where there's supposed to be a laugh. You hear it in the rhythm of the thing. Everybody knows that uh, that didn't happen. It didn't get to laugh. So um, it's a dance between the audience and 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 the performer. You know. With all this being said about you as Freddie Benson, you in this show, who would know, who would think that you are a trained Shakespearean actor? Who would think? Got an MFA from Alabama yeah, Shakespeare so my Festival. Pre- my professors are all <laughs> how did, how did that drinking happen? themselves you, you, with the you, 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 that I've turned into such a <laughs> hack. You spent, you spent four years at the Alabama Shakespeare Festival. Tell us how you, how you got to that point through college and all that, how you, um, how you got started. I... Uh, I I was talking to a lady at my daughter's school today. She has a, a, a fifth grader with the most beautiful voice. And I was like, watch out, that kid. We, she sang at a concert last week. I was like, that uh-huh. kid, you can tell young. And I was sort of one of those kids where um, I, I'm from a large Catholic family. I'm a, from a sort of a middle-class neighborhood in St. Louis, Missouri. We don't – Broadway was not anything that anybody aspired to do. But my parents were sort of flummoxed come about fifth, sixth, seventh grade. And teachers are starting to tell them, you know, you need to get him – I. I, I sang young, and um, people noticed it, and and sort of was like, "What do you do with that?" You know, 
And, um, you know, my folks didn't really really have the money, but choir directors and teachers would say, he, he really needs to start studying now. My parents were like, oh, okay. So I started off, you know, as a kid singer. You know, I, I never did professionally, but I did choirs and state choirs and festivals and juries and all that kind of stuff. And I did get a scholarship to go to college, um, a partial music scholarship. But it, somewhere around in high school, I was like... Um, you know what? I want to. I think I want to be an actor. So maybe I think the movies of Jimmy Cagney and later the movies of Robert Duvall. I was like, I want to do what these guys are doing because they play really like sort of lightweight guys, and then they play really heavy dark guys. And I was like, I can't you know? So uh, I switched my focus to acting really, and I started college as a as an acting major. And I I, I, I wasn't even a musical theater major. I never did musicals in college. I was a straight acting major. And at a college in St. Louis, Missouri called Webster University as a sort of a conservatory training program. And then I finished there and I um, I took a year off and I did some regional theater and then I wanted a master's because I was crazy for Shakespeare. And, um, and so I had a friend who was down at the Alabama Shakespeare Festival in Montgomery, Alabama. They have a, uh, you wouldn't know it, <laughs> but way down south, there's actually a multi-million dollar facility that does classical work like year round. It's mm-hmm. One of like three companies that has sort of a, a resident acting company and, and and you get to do these huge great plays year round. I went down and I did an MFA for two years. Um, tough MFA program. We are in classes in the mornings and then we understudy all the main roles in the afternoons and then we carry spears at night. You basically do that <laughs> for two years and then you um, and then I was invited to join that equity company professionally for three years after I graduated. So I was down there for almost five years. So what kind of shows were you doing down there? I once, did once you graduated. You know what? It was, it's a great thing about regional theater. I miss it sometimes. I have to be honest. It's fantastic to, you know, we were doing repertory, true repertory theater. So you know, every night of the week it was a different play. You'd have eight plays over a six month season, mm-hmm. and every night was a different play. It's like the sort of the old British Stratford system, you know. So you'd do Saint Joan by Shaw and for a matinee, and then that night you'd maybe do. Henry the Fourth, and the next day there was maybe a new Southern play that a local writer had written, and then the next day, um, maybe there was a Moliere or another contemporary comedy. Uh, but specifically, what kind of parts were you playing down there? They they made us do it all. Mm-hmm. I played lovers, young love, you know, like so young Shakespeare, ingenue, Lysander in Midsummer Night's Dream, and um, um, I got to play Hotspur and and Henry, and um, uh, I got to. Um, I, I played the Dauphin, St. Joan. Um, we did, and then we did a great production of Balm and Gilead, um, Lanford Wilson play, um, great play of the '60s, in which I got to play a drug dealer in that. You know, I mean, you're you, everybody's expected to kind of do it all, and then you know, you do Night of Moliere one acts and really everything. But as you say, not a lot of people realize what's going on down there at Alabama Shakespeare Festival. Right. So what was the next step? Because presumably there weren't there wasn't national press coming down. There no. weren't agents scouting necessarily. No, and I and I didn't really um I didn't really know what I was gonna do. I guess I had been down there five years. I had a master, I was newly married and I thought I was twenty eight years old and I was like, you know, I I I wanna give New York a shot. We we, we didn't have children yet and we wanted them and I thought Maybe let's give this a shot. Um, I sort of didn't go after undergraduate school, and then I didn't go after graduate school. So a couple of years after graduate school, I was like, now's the time. And then I, I I came up and got very, very lucky right away. I mean, I, I got 
stupid lucky, my friends say, in that I moved to New York and within less than two months I was playing the lead role every Sunday night in Rent, um, which had just opened five months before and was the hottest ticket in town. Um, I went to I went to an open audition. Um, I went to an open audition and simultaneously um, one of the publicists for the show had seen me s- sing at this time I uh, I was playing a lot of guitar writing my own music had seen me sing in a, in a small club for a friend's off-Broadway off-off-Broadway benefit concert he said there's a new I'm a publicist for, for Rand have you heard about this show I said of course I've heard about it and he says you need to come to see Bernie Telsey and I said I'm actually going to the open call tomorrow so he helped me get quicker through that line. <laughs> you remember, this was a time when they were lining up Lafayette Street, you know, for nine hours off all across the country. I sang for Bernie. I came back a week later and sang for producers and came back. I did four or five callbacks. And at the time, they really needed a... That show had just opened, and, and that's a very, very aggressive score, as you, you might remember. And so they needed an understudy for those two lead guys, ASAP. They were going through singers like, you know... Like like the St. Louis Cardinals go through relief pitchers. I mean, it was just it was bad, um, and I found myself in the very enviable enviable position of being um, sort of like the the main kind of swing for them. And I, I played those roles all the time, and then took over that lead role um, of Roger, the sort of rocker guy, for the second year of the run on Broadway. And then you know that's how I got my agent, and that's when Rob Marshall came and saw me and cast me in Cabaret and. And then I've just well, well. Let's not move off rent too fast. I mean, it must have been an incredibly heady period oh, to come I was into freaked that out. show. I was freaked out. I had never seen a Broadway show before. Hmm. Rent was the first Broadway show I'd ever seen, and I saw it after I had auditioned. Um, I'd heard the music, and I'd seen some of the, you know, some clips of it. But that's how I saw the show. I auditioned, and then I went down there, and I waited again in line for three hours for twenty dollars student tickets. You know, and. And then, what, eight weeks later, I'm singing those big ballads in front of a Broadway audience with my hair dyed blonde and, you know, and it it, it really freaked me out. It took me a while to sort of catch up to reality there. Um, and I had just moved to the city uh, and was expecting my first child, so. <laughs> and you, you commented about how hard a show it was for the guys who were the original leads. Oh, yeah. For somebody who, as you were saying, you hadn't been doing musicals. No, but I had been singing. See, more? I had a double life down at graduate school. I mean, I was doing sort of classical theater by day and night, and then I I also uh, had a, a small band of guys that I would play music with, and then we'd go out to the clubs at, like, midnight, and then we would scream out our, our our favorite punk rock covers till 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I had a lot of energy. I had a lot of energy to burn. I know. I look back and go, well, you did what? <laughs> um, so actually singing in those bars actually helped me a lot for Rent. But after about six months, yeah, I was fried. I had to go to see doctors and all kinds of things for my voice. Well, on your website, you say, I relate to Roger on a lot of levels, and I don't relate to him on other levels. I know what it's like to be creatively stuck. I know what it's like to be ashamed of your past and the feeling of wanting to hide away from the rest of the world. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? God, it all sounds so self-important, doesn't it? I look back at the I probably said that like nine years ago. I was like, uh, I'm 40 now. I was, you know, I was 29 when I started in that uh, show. Um, yeah, Rent's a, tough, Rent's a tough show because I had come from sort of text-heavy plays and then you go into this um, operetta so this this sort of very pop culture kind of pop opera you know um, with uh, and 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 Jonathan Larson wasn't again wasn't a playwright he wrote amazing amazing songs and really theatrical songs but there were all these holes in the plot and 
And I found that I found that difficult that to, to to build that character. You know, you sort of have to build them really through the music. So it's it, it in musicals you have to make large transitions of emotion. <laughs> you go from you go from great agony to great joy sometimes in the course of sixteen bars. Uh, and so connecting those dots. But having said that, uh, there's a lot of sadness in in Rent. It a lot of sadness. Those the. the, the at its core, when the play is done honestly, it's about um, people really hanging on to life by a, a, a tether, you know, and um, and reaching out to, to friends for support. It's very idealistic, very beautiful. I, I still love that show a great, great deal. Mm. As sort of naive as, as as it may be, that's it's all that's its great power and charm. I think your show following Rent on, on Broadway, your Broadway show, was Thou Shalt Not, the Harry Connick Jr. musical. Or Thou Shouldn't Have, as I think the New York Post called it. <laughs> well, that, that, that was Harry Connick's first... Well, I'm uh, glad I did. <laughs> it was Harry Connick's first uh, first Broadway show that he, he, he wrote the score, obviously. Yes, I As opposed to appearing. And did that present challenges to you, singing that type of music? Which yeah, that was challenging, different. too. Yeah. That was great fun, though. Susan Stroman directed that. Brilliant director. Um... Worked with some great people. Deb Monk played my mother, and um, Craig Bierko played the lead in it, and um, the great character actor, Leo Burmeister, who we lost last year, um, and Harry, who w- was was new to musical theater, and I was new to music theater, and um, and he wrote a very cool, mellow, jazzy, rhythmic score. Am I correct that that may have been your first opportunity to actually create a role in a show? Had you done any new plays or new musicals before that? No, yes, I had done down at the Shakespeare Festival. We had a new writer's project down there, um, and I actually did a play down there called Lizard, um, originated a role that actually we went to the Olympics. We went to the Cultural Olympics in Atlanta. I didn't know that as a part of the Olympics. They had a whole, a, a host city will also bring out their best regional local music and theater and dance and really? stuff. Yeah, I didn't know there was all this sort of So you these played arts. the big room at the Olympics. So I played the big room. We played the big room. Coliseum, actually, it was. But would I be correct that Thou Shalt Not was your first yeah, original like, musical? Definitely, Yes. So yes. that opportunity, after all these years of work, yeah. not having done as much musical work, coming into a show where where you had some impact on what was going to ultimately end up on the on the page and on the score for yes. all time. Th- found it very very exciting, very exciting. I I loved that process. I know it wasn't re- well received, and people still talk of it as being this notorious bomb. I had a ball, and and I love the source material. It's a it's a fantastic novel, a creepy. Novel by Emile Zola that is just I had great fun reading. About Therese Rakan. exactly, and I thought that um, David Thompson did a great job in translating it, and um, and the part was so fantastic. They wanted me originally to come in for the lead guy, and I read the script and I was like, no, but I'll come in for the sick husband because why? Because that part was so great, man. He was he starts off in Act One as this. This mama's boy, this sickly—you just hated him. This big nerd of a guy, you know. Mm. This, this, this pampered, whiny, sad sack, and then he gets transformed into, you know, Frank Sinatra right in front of your eyes after he's murdered. I thought this is so <laughs> weird. It's either going to be the worst thing ever done or the best thing ever done. And, and, and uh, well, I have to ask you. 
you know, you've already alluded to the problems and the response to the show. It was not generally well received. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with that when you're in a show that you say you loved being a yeah. part of? And a lot of people from the outside were saying, eh, you shouldn't maybe love it so much. Yeah. Uh, our first day of tech for that show was 9-11. So we, uh, I remember coming to work three days later with Tommy Thompson and uh you guys remember this time remember when they were still like we still had like you know coast guards with rifles at the post office standing on the roof mm-hmm. and you remember when it was like sure you know armored tanks coming down 8th Avenue and stuff and you're like is this a Jerry Bruckheimer movie or something and and that's what going to our first day of tech on that show was like and we're going to do a show about this dark piece about murder and 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 infidelity and you know uh and we came, we had to walk from Penn Station down to the to the Plymouth Theater, and we literally had to jump into you know, bodega to bodega because there would be alarms and everybody would freak out on the street and run back in. So that, this long-winded answer is: we were so grateful to go back to work. We were so grateful that that event did not bury Broadway. There was about a couple days, and I was like, "Are we done? Is this it?" Is this finally? They said it's been dying for a long time. Is this finally killed it? And we got back to that theater, and Susan Stroman sat up with tears running down her face and made the most incredible speech as to why it was so important that we do this dark, twisted, weird new musical. And uh, I was like, it was like her Henry the Five, Henry the Fifth moment. And I was like, I would follow this woman anywhere. And I'm mm-hmm. so grateful to do this play. The reviews came out. The, climate to do the show is terrible in and people hated it i and i honestly and i I don't care if it sounds idealistic i was so grateful for that show to have a job when so many people could not it closed a lot of shows it was a bad time well you spoke of how the character on this page spoke to you how about the music of harry connick yeah, um, I loved it. I loved it right away. And the, the first demo that I got of the show had his voice on it. Uh-huh. That is a singer. You know, Harry is praised a lot for his compositions and his piano playing is brilliant, world class. He is, you guys saw Pajama Game. Mm-hmm. What he can do with a lyric and that voice is phenomenal. And I think secretly that Harry thought Camille was the best role in the show, too, because he wrote, and that he might play it someday, because he wrote all the great music for that character. And I noticed that when I when I first listened to it. I had never sung, um, I, have a, I have a loud voice. I have a very, I have, I, have a, I have a kind of, I don't know, a braying voice. I guess it's well-suited to kind of Broadway houses. And Harry kept coming to me and saying, no, y'all do. This isn't the way you do it. He got that strange southern accent. This isn't the way you do it, dude. You got to lay back. You got to hold back on that voice. Now, mm-hmm. bring it way back. I don't want Broadway. I want to be cool, man. I want to be cool. Mm-hmm. So uh, he kept, with jazz singing, it's uh, it's the restraint. It's the less is more, Max, and that gets you further. And going from an all-out musical like Rent to this must have been quite a It was a very hard. It was very hard, hard, and that was the first be. thing I did after Rent. Um no, I had actually done Jason Robert Brown's last five years before I did Thou Shalt Not, which was another very, Jason Robert Brown, very belty, very, very, very high belty. No, he didn't, Harry did not want a belt. <laughs> he wanted smooth. Well, choose one of the songs from Thou Shalt Not, and we'll play it as an illustration well, of this his song, music. Well, um, this song, um, Oh Ain't That Sweet, is uh, 
was an amazing thing. The second act of the show was not working, and I had a song that was not working. But Harry liked my singing, and he went out for a jog. This is a true story. We were like in our, in our second week of previews. He went out for a jog with an iPod on his head, composed the song in his head, came home, downloaded the song using his Pro Tools. I got a demo of it at 6, and we performed it at 8 o'clock that night on stage, or, or in the second act that night. It was wow. a song that was literally written and performed in the same day. You mentioned the last five years, and we were looking at your Broadway work, but let, let's talk about last five years, which is an interesting show in its construction in that it's a two-character show, mm-hmm. but you're always singing monologues, yeah. basically. Can can you t- tell us about it, the show and about that yeah. structure? It's a it's it's a brilliant well chamber musical. I think it's uh, having a really great life in regional theater right now. Two characters, one set, pretty easy to do with a stunning group of songs, um, and um, it's it's it's. It's, it, the writing is very close to the bone. The, the the writer had gone through a very difficult divorce and, and it basically just kind of stuck a pen in his blood and just really put it down on paper, you know. And um, so it's not easy music to sing because the it's, it, it's quite emotional, um, but a, a real joy. Jason Rob Brown is a phenomenal lyricist. He writes like Sondheim. Um, it's, it's character-based stuff. You could speak the songs, and 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 be able to put every bit of emotion into it that that's how that's how interesting and layered the thinking of the characters is while they're singing so we had a great time we took it to chicago and we did it at a little theater called north light theater kind of away from new york which was which is a great way to work it's great to take a piece away from the city where all the hounds can kind of stay away from it and and really shape it and really just do your work and then bring it to new york with with more confidence and that's what we did it never found an audience, you know. We uh, we ran it down at the Mineta Lane, which is I just have great memories. Uh, there was Sherry Scott, who's a phenomenal singer and actress, and and uh, that's such a great neighborhood, you know. After being on Broadway for a couple of years, to be down in that, you know, in the West Village, and uh, we go to the Mineta Lane Tavern every night after the show and have a gimlet and felt like some, <laughs> you know, artiste. Um, but 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 I love doing the show. It's a, it, it's about the disintegration of a relationship told from two different points of view, um, um, and the characters never meet except in the middle, um, actually on the day of their wedding. Hmm. Um, well, she's recalling the story from the current. Backwards from, and he's from the beginning yes, to the end. Correct. So they're telling the same story, so the audience has to really pay attention because they're hearing the most recent details from her, yep. the older ones from you, and then, as you say, they cross in the middle. Yeah. And I think that that structure, it does. It makes an audience go, now what's happening? What's happening? It makes you detach a little bit from the emotion, which I think packs a bigger wall up, I think, once you actually figure out. Um, if you were just to put out 16 heartbreaking songs about a couple you know, not not making it. I think it would have less impact. Um, Jason gives you a puzzle to figure out at the same time. Um, so you can have a little distance from some of those sometimes really heavy emotions, you know. Um, 
It's and brilliantly it, directed by Daisy Prince. And of well. course, the the uh, the title, the last five years, the last five years of their relationship. So yeah. it's that that kind of autobiographical thing. Exactly. Well, John alluded to it. We'll, we'll very diplomatically say certainly it was drawn from some of the author's life. Was yeah. there a burden to to being the guy, basically playing the guy who uh, wrote the show? It, it, it was a little strange at first. Jason is a bit of uh, he's a good friend of mine, and he wouldn't. <laughs> say this if he were sitting right here. He's a bit of a performer. I think he's performed the show in concert versions himself, you know. Um, he's a performer at the piano, and he was on stage. The, it was an onstage band. So, you know, when I'm out there acting the role, I could hear him in back of me sort of acting the role on the piano, you know, with his feet. He's a very physical pianist, brilliant piano player. My gosh. Just one of the most rhythmic piano players you're ever going to find anywhere. And... Um, and so sometimes it was sort of like, Jace, chill out back there. Let me let me let, let me be you. <laughs> it was becoming a bit too much of a cathartic experience. It sounds like <laughs> I think it was a cathartic experience for him, and I think that um, that he really respected what what we did with it, and uh, eventually just handed it over to us. And uh, it remains one of the most favorite things I've ever done in my whole life. Well, one of the shows you've been in that our audience certainly knows extremely well is Wicked. Uh, you originated yes. the role of Fierro in that. Yes. Tell us how you got into what has now become one of the hit Broadway <laughs> shows of all time. I don't know, man. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how any of it. I just trip into this stuff. I mean, uh, how does somebody with my name, you know, get arrested in, in this business? But uh, um, I, I don't know how it happened. Um, I had read Wicked. <laughs> the novel? The novel. Mm -hmm. Years ago, before Wicked Cray, I was in Rent at the time, and the lady playing opposite me, Marcy Harriel, was reading it in her dressing room, and we would always trade books back and forth. Hmm. And she'd say, you've got to read this. And I gave it a couple tries, and I was like, oh, Marcy, I just don't, can't get into the language here, man. I mean, it was this... It was this uh, fantasy meets kind of satire on The Wizard of Oz... She was like, "Trust me, don't put it down." She 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 kept on challenging me to read it, and I finally did, and I was I was just totally taken with it. You, it's it's a Gregory Maguire is very challenging at first because he kind of creates a whole, you know, uh, uh, like Tolkien, he kind of creates a whole new way of talking, um, which can be a little and so many characters. It's a very dense piece of fiction, but I loved it. And then flash flash forward. I'm doing last five years at the Manhattan Lane and a script comes to me for Wicked and I thought, well, this, you could see instantly where the appeal of the piece was and um, having, you know, this kind of new take on the Wizard of Oz and um, and it, it really is a very, very smart story about um, about fascism, really, if you, at least, at least, at least the book is and for the musical, of course, they, they downplayed some of the political overtones of the piece, and but sort it's of, still there. It's still there, and pushed that re relationship, made it more of a story about empowerment through friendship between two women, um, which is um, which is why it's had such huge appeal. You know, um, I had never sung such. Uh, I loved Pippin when I was a kid, <laughs> uh, so I did know Stephen Schwartz from that aspect, but I had never sung such sort of. Um, I don't know what this, the word is, kind of like blatant pop music before. I mean, he's such a pop songwriter. That was a little tricky for me. Um, and it's it was tricky because it's the Gershwin is a great big barn of a theater, man. It's this huge thing. And 
the set itself was crazy big and the costumes kept getting you know there was so much money on stage you're like where's the little play that we saw and eventually i think we found it again but it was really really a tough process putting the that show together. Well, you went out of town with the show. You yeah. were originally in San Francisco. What was the experience out there of finding your legs? Um, well, for me personally, it was a scary time because the songs that that I was given were not working. And I thought two, one of two things are going to be happening. I'm going to be fired or they got to write new stuff. And I was lucky enough not to be fired and he wrote new stuff. Um, um, he, he wrote this song, Dancing Through Life, which, which was also a really cool process because he had me over to his apartment and he played three songs and he was Steven Schwartz did. And he's like, you know, these are what I got in mind. Which one sounds the best to you? <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> and, uh, k- kind of not, not, not so much, but let's find out what sits most comfortably in your voice. And this was really cool. Cause we were both big police fans and we heard this kind of, he heard this police percussion kind of going on. I was like, Oh yeah, this could be really, really cool. So from there it sort of germinated and, and we started to find our way into the part. But that's not the typical way that a composer works. He doesn't call the actor and say, what do you think of this? No, but, you know, I've been lucky because Jason Robert Brown had only written three or four songs for the last five years when he called me into his apartment and played me one of those songs. And uh, I heard one of the the heartbreakers, and I excused myself, and I went into his bathroom and started weeping. (laughs) I was like, that's when you know it's good stuff, you know what I mean? Uh, So I've I've, I've been lucky in that way. But, um, yeah, Wicked, Wicked was a little tough the the role was tough because in order it's a huge sprawling book they took a couple of characters and kind of smashed them together and and created fiero from that so at first it was a little flat on the page you know what i mean um but eventually um we had a great director joe mantello and those two women are just phenomenal so they we, we made it work so after wicked a change of pace in terms of going from the fantasy world yes. of, of both Gregory Maguire and Winnie Holtzman and Stephen Schwartz yeah. and Al Frankbaum to um, a, a Steve Martin movie yeah. or a David Niven movie. For Again, those Howard, who I have no idea. I Dirty don't Rotten know. Scoundrels. Yep. Uh, uh, just a, a downpouring of blessings. <laughs> you know, David Yazbek, I remember, came to see last five years. And I think he liked my voice, and, and and I was basically just, while I was doing Wicked, sent a script and said, hey, do you want to be part of this reading we're doing of it? Um, I said, I'd love to be. Um, so I actually saw this movie years ago, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, at a Steve Martin Film Festival in London when I was a student in London. I did two years of undergrad in London, and and there was this great old theater, and they would play, they would find a you know, some iconic performer and, and do like 24 hours of their films. And they had gutted the seats out of the theater and kept it open 24 hours. So like winos and drunks and hookers would come and just, you could eat pot, you could smoke Which and you could drink beer. Which you represent? <laughs> <laughs> All of the above. No, 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 no. Um, <laughs> um, and, and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels was one of the six movies or something they show. And I think it's such a hilarious comedy i was intrigued and i loved i again i just thought the script was so funny and i was set, set to do it and then i hurt my neck i got hurt in wicked i was sidelined with a neck injury for fairly three, quickly right after yeah opened. about a month after we opened i ruptured two discs in my neck and i had to have surgery and i was out of work for about six weeks um so i couldn't do the reading and then a few months later when i went a full like two-week workshop of it came back around they asked me again and i was healed enough i was barely healed i was only a few weeks out of surgery and I did that workshop with um, Brian Stokes Mitchell, 
which was a real treat, you know. To see as, his, as the Lawrence his, Jameson, as character. the Lawrence Jameson character, yeah. yes, yes, and which was which was great, great fun. And um, Lithgow came to see just for fun. I think he had a friend or something, just for fun. We, you know, we did a little staged reading for a couple hundred people or whatever. And he was just rolling with laughter the entire time, with no intention to do it, no desire to do it. And then um, Stokes, I think, had a, a TV commitment that came up, and then the role opened up, and John's like, well, I'll come in, but I'm going to audition for you. He wanted to audition for it. I said, any audition? And and uh, I found out he was cast, and we didn't know each other. I think we'd met socially once or twice, um, literally like a handshake. But we saw each other at, a, uh, at, a, at an event after we were both cast, and like two little boys, we started giggling across the room from each other and ran over to each other. And I didn't even know him. I was like, we're going to have so much fun, and we did. It was well, just- it wasn't just an event. It was Carnegie Hall that I read somewhere, that you saw each other. You were we both did see Carnegie each other at Carnegie Hall at, uh, you know what? It wasn't Carnegie Hall. It was the... Um, it was the concert hall um, at Lincoln Center where Kristen Chenoweth was appearing in uh-huh. um, Candide. She was doing Candide with Lonnie Price over there. And, and John and I were both invited to uh-huh. like an invited dress or something like that. And that's where we <laughs> saw each other. And I was like... Well, you talk about... You mentioned Stokes having done the reading. Mm-hmm. Of course, you you created your role opposite John Lithgow. Mm-hmm. And then later in the run, you stayed in and and Jonathan Price came in. Yes. And a lot has been said about the difference in Lithgow's approach to yeah. Jonathan Price's approach. I'm wondering for you what the difference was playing your role mm. opposite those... Two indelible performances, well, you know, but pe- different performances. People always ask me about those two guys, and I, I sometimes feel like the mistress that's between them. You know, I don't want to tattle on either one of them. I love you both. <laughs> Fellas, don't fight over me. <laughs> uh, amazing actors, both of them. Um, Lith, I, I, it's hard to talk about them. I love them both so much. I mean, John, among his many gifts, is one of the dearest most compassionate hilarious people john is a real, was a was the leader of our company he was a he's a big tv star he's a big movie star he's a big broadway star and he comes in with all the humor and grace and humility of somebody who was like a kid so excited to come to work and everybody caught on to that energy and it it created he was he was the father of our broadway company and so that that was kind of his role um and his Lawrence Jameson was um, was very um, very very elegant, um, and um, in in a in a Noel Coward sort of way. I, I, I loved he he had these great vocal inflections. He was fantastic with the language. And then Price came in and said, "Well, you know, I think." And Jonathan Price and Lithgow are good friends. Those guys have sort of their careers have run parallel, and they worked together years ago on I think their first Broadway show comedians comedians exactly um, Jonathan Price comes in and and takes the part and goes in a whole different crazy direction with him his he played the part where he starts off the show very repressed and then he starts to feed off of Freddie's energy and he gets almost as madcap and crazy as I did so we were like truly like a like you know, Harpo and Groucho out there. You were there. a bad influence. <laughs> I was a very bad influence on her. Where John and I were sort of a classic straight man, you know, sidekick type of a thing. Jonathan Price and I were like two two sidekicks, you know, <laughs> looking for a for, for free ride. Um, uh, Jonathan Price is wild, wildly inventive guy. 
change it up every night wildly. Do something completely different. You'd be like, what? What? Where's he going with this? I loved it, though. He's almost rec- almost reckless sometimes on stage, which I found really fantastic. Well, how, how, how did Freddie Benson change during the run? I saw the first night of previews, and I saw it well into the run when Jonathan Price was in it. Yes, and Freddie, Freddie Benson, seemed to really have evolved. He evolved into someone who was much more sore than he was at the beginning of the run. Freddie, Freddie became bruised from head to toe by the time I finished that year and a half on Broadway with almost vocal nodes going on in my voice and, and a fracture on my foot and misplaced ribs in my back. And that I, I don't know. I look back on that Herculean thing. I thought, I started throwing my body around in rehearsals and, you know, Jonathan Price came up to me and he's like, my boy, didn't you know you were going to be doing this eight performances a week? What were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> but Freddie seemed to uh, become more, more exhibitionist, more wild, whatever, as you got more into the character. Did you let, let yourself go more and more as you were developing the character? Well, John, I think what happens if you're in a long run, um, you need to you need to keep inventing things to do. Uh, I get very very bored, and if I'm bored, I know the audience is getting bored. <laughs> so I think that's just the natural progression of you know of, of doing something for a long time. Well, let's let's do a song from uh, from the show. Which one do you want to play? This song, uh, when I first heard it, was the funniest thing that I had ever. Sherry and I couldn't rehearse this song for three weeks because we couldn't get through it without laughing. I don't know if you know the story, but this is a guy who's pretending to be paralyzed from the waist down in order to elicit the sympathy of a rich heiress. Um, He's trying to get, get her in the sack is what he's trying to do. <laughs> <laughs> and that's his only M.O. throughout the entire song. So, I have to ask you about the evolution of the character. That first night of previews, the scene in which uh, Lawrence Jameson is pretending to woo uh, uh, Jolene Oakes. And they mm. sit on the stage. And yeah, you yeah. went up to the box seat on, oh, the, yeah. on the right side of the house. And you actually perched on the brass <laughs> rail looking down onto the stage. Yeah. And I saw on opening night, you did not perch on the brass rail. Yeah. You stayed in the box seat. Was that because the lawyers, the insurance people said, <laughs> don't do that anymore? <laughs> Probably. And eventually, I was cut from that box seat altogether, Jack. Oh, yeah. we, we cut that bit. You know, the show, the, the, the show um, pe- people loved it. And um, we were we were getting a lot of laughs. And Jack O'Brien's a really smart director. He's like, you know what? I'll sacrifice some of these laughs if we can streamline and be a little more truthful about the storytelling. You know what I mean? Be a, be on our toes a little bit more with it. So Jack had no problem coming in saying, you know what? I know you're getting a big laugh on this. Stop doing it. It's not working for the larger <laughs> for the larger good. Good at the show. Well, Norbert, currently on Broadway in Is He Dead, the new Mark Twain show. He's currently playing in that. Thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Thanks. Center. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Norbert. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.